The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Such a pleasure to be here with you this evening. I'm very grateful to Pastor Daniel for that very warm introduction. I have to say this is my first time coming and preaching before this blessed congregation, but uh, for many years, uh, Pastor Ray, and of course, still Vicky, dear friends, uh, to my wife, Inga Lil, and myself. And we've loved and respected the work that God has done here at Maranatha Chapel for a long, long time. Hey, Vicky. And so I just want to say thank you to Pastor Daniel and thank you to the very, very wonderful leadership and good people at Maranatha Chapel for having me out here uh, today and tomorrow. Um, I, I, I do have sort of an unusual ministry. I'm no longer pastoring a church. Uh, but what I do is I give my energy, my time full time to a unique ministry I have. I have an online commentary through the entire Bible. And it's not an academic commentary. It's a popular one. Uh, it's just something that's helpful for a lot of people. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. It's absolutely free. We don't even have like a VIP zone or a you know, paid thing or paid ads on the website. Uh, it's just a Bible resource that's there, free, available for you. And if I could be so bold, I just want to put a little bug in your ear to ask you to pray for me and the work of this Bible commentary, especially the work we do in translating it into other languages. If it's a good thing to have a free Bible resource, a good Bible resource in English, they're really rare in other languages. And so we've translated the entire commentary into Spanish. We're well on our way to having it entirely finished in Arabic, Chinese, German, Russian, Italian, Portuguese. Uh, We feel God's hand of blessing is really on this work to provide a completely free Bible resource for people globally. But we think God's hand of blessing is on it because... Just about everywhere I go, I ask people to pray. So if you could just, I'm not expecting a half-hour war room intercession every day, but if you could just make mention in prayer, Lord, bless Pastor David, the work of Enduring Word, especially the translation, I'd be very grateful for that. All right, now, let's get on to the message. Father, thank you. Lord, I I just believe that as I stand here, I I stand at a great legacy of a dear friend and of a current friend, an ongoing legacy. So, Father, I pray that you would, yes, Father, pour out your spirit upon me. But, Lord, I pray even more importantly that you would uh, fill with understanding and, and, and reception every person here this evening to receive what your spirit would say to him in and through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't know if this is a usual sermon or an unusual sermon. I don't know, because I've never preached it before. You guys are the guinea pigs. We'll see. If it's no good, I'll change my thing and do something different tomorrow morning. But let's see how it goes here this evening. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. Tonight, we're going to talk about Balaam. Now, when I say Balaam, what's the first thing you think of? A talking donkey. And we'll get to the talking donkey. He's part of the story. But he is by no means the most important part of the story. Let me put a little bit of context to the story of Balaam here. You have the children of Israel for 400 years in Egypt. 
And most of that time, they spent under a brutal slavery until God raised up a deliverer for them, Moses. And under the great plagues that God inflicted upon Egypt and her idol gods, upon the great plague of the firstborn that he subjected Pharaoh and all of Egypt to, God led Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He brought them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness of Sinai, until they came to Mount Sinai, where they were there for about a year, receiving the law, receiving the instructions on the priesthood and the tabernacle and all the rest of it. Eventually, they moved on from Mount Sinai and started, came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. When they came to Kadesh Barnea, God offered them the promised land. Go take the land. Let's go into the land. But the people of Israel refused to take the land by faith. And to compress the story down to just a few bare words, God said, fine, you will perish in the wilderness. And I'm going to raise up a new generation that will take the land by faith. By the time we come to Numbers chapter 22, the old generation is dead, almost all of them. There's a few more to die off, but pretty much the old generation is dead in Numbers chapter 22. And the new generation is on their way to take the promised land. That's thrilling, isn't it? And as they're on their way to take the promised land, they're conquering enemies along the way until they come to the land of Moab. And there's a king over the land of Moab. His name is Balak. And let's see what it says here. Numbers chapter 22. Now, as we make our way through Numbers, I'm going to be sort of scanning and skipping over. We're going to kind of compress the story over several chapters into one hopefully 40-minute or so sermon. Let's see what we can do here. Verses 1 through 4 of Numbers chapter 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Do you get the picture? They're on the threshold of the promised land. Verse 2, now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, break right there at the end of verse 4, See what's happening here? Balak, the king of Moab, is terrified that the children of Israel will come and conquer him. Now, this is what he doesn't know. God told the children of Israel not to mess around with the Moabites. They were a cousin nation to Israel. But Balak either didn't know it or didn't believe it. But he's terrified. And so what is he going to do? Look now at verse 5. Balak sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who is at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and are settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. Balak, the king of Moab, and this is sort of act one. This is a story in four acts here tonight. In act one, Balak, the king of Moab, is attempting to hire a man named Balaam to curse Israel. 
Now, Balaam is a very unique man in the pages of the scripture. He's not an Israelite. Matter of fact, he was a strange pagan prophet. It seems that some of the prophecy that he did, he did by cutting open animals, spreading out the guts of the animals upon an altar, and examining the layout and making some sort of divination that way. It was a common way of pagan prophecy, so to speak, in the ancient world. To Balaam, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, was just another God among the others. And Balaam hoped that he could use Yahweh to get what he wanted. So Balak sends to Balaam and says, come and put a curse on these people in verse 6. You see, much to Balak's credit, he understood that the real power of Israel was spiritual in nature. If Israel was going to be defeated, it was because in some way their God had turned against them. If their God was for them, then nothing could be against them. That's the logic that Balak is operating under. So he sends some men to Balaam to hire him as a prophet, and God speaks to Balaam when the men come. Look here at verse 9 of chapter 22. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, well, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message. A people has come out of Egypt, covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. Now notice this, please. Verse 12. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Friends, would you please remember through the rest of the story of Balaam what God told Balaam first at verse 12. What did he say to Balaam? Don't go with them. Don't do it. Don't go with them. Don't put a curse upon Israel. So what does Balak do? Well, Balaam sends them away. And then what does Balak do, the king of Moab? Well, he sends back some men who are even more honorable with a greater reward, a bigger payday, so to speak. And he offers Balaam more money than ever to curse Israel. What does Balaam do in response when the guys come back a second time? Look at this in verses 18 and 19 of Numbers chapter 22. Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything small or great to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. Friends, do you see what Balaam's doing? What annoys me about Balaam right here is that he's acting a lot like I do sometimes. God says no, and I say, Lord, can we talk about this a little bit more? Lord, shouldn't we discuss this? God says no, and I say, well, let me seek the Lord about this. <laughs> Friends, Jesus told us in the story, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, not the story, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Do you remember those words of Jesus? Amen. Well, you know, there's something else that we should do as well. We should let God's yes be yes and God's no be no. But Balaam wouldn't do it. God specifically told Balaam. We saw it back at verse 12, didn't we? I laid a special emphasis on it. Don't go with them. 
don't curse Israel. And Balaam basically said to God, ah, it's an awful lot of money they're offering. Are you sure I can't go with them? Are you sure I can't be hired by the king of Moab? Now, here's the great danger when we keep coming to God, asking him about something that he's already told us his will about. The great danger in it is not that God will keep saying no. The great danger is that God may say to us, okay, go ahead and take it. Go ahead and follow the destructive path that I told you to stay away from. And that's exactly what happens with Balaam. Look what happens here, verse 20. That night God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. Friends, I want to emphasize here, God did not change his mind. God was like, well, don't go with them. No, okay, go ahead and go with them. No, 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 no. Friends, sometimes God says no to your prayers because he loves you. He cares for you. And in a way that sometimes we cannot perceive, no is the most loving answer that God could give. And sometimes God says yes to the desires of the wicked because he wants to judge them. Listen, when God said to Balaam, go with them, that was no more evidence of God's approval of Balaam and no more approval of Balaam's greed than the words Jesus spoke to Judas in John chapter 13 when he said to Judas, do what you do quickly. No, that didn't approve the actions of Judas and God was not approving what Balaam did. He was allowing to go the course that his wicked heart desired. All right, that's act one. Ready for act two? You're going to like this one. Act two, Balaam and the donkey. Look at this, verse 22. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. So you see, as Balaam rode his donkey, running off as fast as he can to go to the king of Moab, to go to Balak and collect that big payday for cursing Israel, as Balaam rode his donkey, the donkey saw and responded to the angel of the Lord. That's the fascinating thing about the story. The donkey can see the angel of the Lord, but Balaam can't. Isn't that remarkable? Look, I, I'm not here to tell you that donkeys can always see angelic beings. But on this case, the angel of the Lord was clearly seen by the donkey, while the supposed prophet Balaam was utterly blind to the presence of the angel of the Lord right there in his midst. The donkey stopped and he laid down. And because he was frustrated at the delay, I mean, look, the donkey is smart. He goes, I'm not going to run past the angel of the Lord. There's the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. I'm not going anywhere. I'm stopping. I'm laying down. Balaam is so frustrated that he starts beating the donkey. Now, by the way, I think that this donkey is a perfect picture of a simple, unspectacular, obedient servant of God, sensitive to God's direction and a thorn to the disobedient 
and also a victim of the wrath of the ungodly. He's taking a beating from Balaam, something terrible. And I want you to understand something. Balaam was frustrated because he wasn't going on to this big paying job to curse Israel. But it was God's mercy that made that donkey stop. And it's true sometimes, the hindrance that frustrates you so much right now, it might just be God's mercy towards you. All right, we're back here. Verse 28. This is the part everybody loves, and for good reason. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make me beat me these three times? Okay, now that's a great verse. Even better is verse 29. Balaam, without missing a beat, Balaam answered the donkey. You've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And look at Balaam's response. It's so wonderful at the end of verse 30. No, he said. Now look, when a donkey not only speaks, but gets the better of you in an argument, you know you're in trouble. You should just go back home. And that's really the funny thing about it. Now, it is, of course, amazing that the donkey spoke. We, we don't know the actual mechanism by which it happened. We don't know if it was an angel playing ventriloquist through the donkey. We don't know if the donkey had cognizant thought. We just don't know. We don't know, and it doesn't really matter. There's no problem for the creator of all things to do such things. But Balaam was so irrational. Balaam was so angry that he answered back. He didn't even stop and say, why are you talking to me? He answers back without hesitation. He seemed unimpressed by a donkey that carried on an intelligent conversation with him. And as I said before, verse 30 tells us that in the back and forth between Balaam and his donkey, Balaam admitted that the donkey got the better of him in the argument. Balaam had to humble himself before his donkey. All right, you're right. You've never acted this way before. Maybe I'm being a little bit irrational here. And then everything changes at verse 31. Look at this with me. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. Can we just pause there for a moment? Would that not be a terrifying sight? The angel of the Lord with a drawn sword right in your path. Continuing on. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me three times. If it had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared it, meaning the donkey. Friends, in a moment, Balaam saw the truth, what was actually happening. Listen, the angel of the Lord was there all the time. That drawn sword was there all the time, but Balaam couldn't perceive it. There is a real spiritual realm that we live in the midst of that surrounds us all the time that is real. And even if we don't perceive it, it's still all around us. And then what did Balaam do? Well, he humbled himself. Friends, I, I got to say, I don't give a lot of credit for Balaam humbling himself. There's a lot of people 
who humble themselves under the immediate threat of judgment. Look, if you're not going to bow down to the ground before the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword, I suppose there's no hope for you whatsoever. But I'll tell you what Balaam did not do. He did not turn around and start walking back to his house. He still had every intention of continuing on. Even when the angel rebuked him, verse 32, your path is a reckless one before me. And Balaam learned that donkey was right. And he had actually, she actually had saved his life. But he continued on. And Balaam got to Moab and he met with King Balak. Now being a prophet for hire, we're into act three now, the prophecies, the oracles of Balaam. Being a prophet for hire, Balaam wanted to fulfill the expectations of the man who hired him. Look, you do work for somebody. Hey, I'll come and uh, I'll put in a kitchen at your house and here's the estimate and here's what we'll do and all this. It's expected you'll fulfill the work. Uh, Hey, you know, you'll write some software for me and this is what I need the program to do and all this and it all works. Okay, great. It's all there. Now, listen, if a king pays you a lot of money to curse the people of Israel, you have an expectation that you'll do it. That was Balaam's hope, that he would be able to curse the people of Israel. And so he does it in a series of four prophecies. And it's amazing, as you see each one of these prophecies set up, Balaam begins by telling King Balak, all right, this is what I'm going to need. I'm going to need seven altars, I'm going to need seven bulls, and I'm going to need seven rams. Let's sacrifice one bull and one ram on each one of the seven altars. Can I say that's kind of expensive? But you do it. Look, Balak knows, I got to get these Israelites cursed. And so he makes this agreement with Balaam. They make all the sacrifices. And at the end of it all, Balaam's message was this. Israel can't be cursed. Look at this. Uh, Chapter 23, verse 8. I'm just going to read you this one verse from the first prophecy. Ready? Here's one takeaway verse from the first prophecy. Uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 8. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? Hey, Hey, Balak, it's not in my power to curse Israel. God has to curse them. All I can do is be a mouthpiece for God. Now, when Balak heard this, he said, what are you doing? I hired you to curse Israel, and you've blessed them. But if you give Balak marks for anything, you should give him marks for persistence. He said, all right, let's do this again. So we get to prophecy two. That starts in verse 13 of chapter 23. Prophecy 2 has another seven altars with another seven bulls and another seven rams. And Balaam's message was that the unchanging God blesses Israel. Let me read to you some of this. It's so beautiful. You'll get the flow of this. Uh, Chapter 23, beginning at verse 18. Look at it there with me now. Uh, Again, Numbers chapter 23, starting at verse 18. Then he spoke his message. This is Balaam speaking. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. 
God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery is observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There's no divination against Jacob. No evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. And if you can just imagine King Balak hearing those words from Balaam and his heart is sinking lower and lower. He's telling them, Balak, there's no way that you can defeat God's people Israel. Because God is behind him. The God, verse 19, who is not human and can't be bribed or impressed with riches. The God who does not lie and does not change his mind. The the God who always performs his word. Does he speak and not act? No way. And the God who has all strength and the power to fulfill what he promises. Balak, you don't understand this God of Israel. He's not like one of your lame, puny, Moabite gods. He's the God of all gods, and you can't manipulate him like you think you manipulate these pagan idols. Therefore, verse 20, he has blessed, and I cannot change it. I'm just trying to be a voice of what God says, Balak. And this strange prophet, Balaam, could only speak the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord over his people Israel was one of blessing and not cursing. God declared Israel to be blessed in verse 20, even saying in verse 23 that there's no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. Balak, your plan won't work. You could say that If Balaam had the vocabulary of the Apostle Paul, he would say what Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? There's nothing you can do about this. Now again, I just want you to imagine, after this second prophecy, how angry, how frustrated is Balak? But you know, he was persistent, if nothing else. He says, all right, the first two times have been a disaster Let's do it again. So after another seven altars, another seven bulls, another seven rams. Do you got the count? How many altars are we up to so far? 21. 21 altars, 21 bulls, 21 rams. On all of them, let's have prophecy three. And the basic message of the third prophecy was this. God has blessed Israel with beauty and with strength. Verse 10 of Numbers chapter 24, we're up to chapter 24 now. Verse 10 of Numbers 24, this is what Balak says at the end of it all. I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you've blessed them these three times. Friends, for King Balak, it couldn't have gone worse. It was a disaster. Through Three prophecies, 21 altars, 21 bulls, 21 rams. Israel is still blessed. 
In the first prophecy, Balaam failed to curse Israel. In the second prophecy, Balaam blessed Israel. And in the third prophecy, Balaam cursed Balak and blessed Israel again. So Balak finally does what any of us would do. What would you do if you hired somebody for a job and three times they failed and cost you a lot of money? You're fired. And so he fired Balaam. No, I'm not giving you the big reward I promised. You're fired. You got to go home. And then Balaam basically said, I'll give you prophecy number four for free. That's what Balaam said. With no altars, with no sacrifices, Balaam gave a fourth prophecy. And in some ways, it was the most glorious of all. Israel will be victorious and her Messiah shall reign. Let me read to you a bit from prophecy four, verse 17 of Numbers chapter 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. And friends, who do you think that Balaam, the weird prophet, was speaking prophetically of in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17? He was looking forward to Israel's great Messiah, Jesus Christ. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this strange and unlikely prophet of Yahweh described a glorious one, one like a star who had the authority to rule. That's pictured by a scepter. Friends, previously... Balaam prophesied about the beauty of Israel, the strength of Israel, the blessedness of Israel. But now God used him to speak of the culmination of all of Israel's beauty, the epitome of all their strength, the the, the peak of all their blessedness, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Israel's ultimate blessedness comes from Jesus, their Messiah. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Friends, think about that. A star and a scepter. A star, a beautiful, radiant figure in the heavens, giving light, giving guidance, shining in the darkness, that's Jesus Christ. You know, think about how we metaphorically use that that word, that idea of a star. What do we call somebody who's famous? We call him a star. What do we call somebody who's really famous? A superstar. Friends, I, I don't mean this in a strange way, but Jesus Christ needs to be the star of your life. He really does. You know who doesn't need to be the star of your life? You. Give up your dreams of stardom and put your focus on the star that rises out of Jacob. But it's not just the star. It's a scepter. You know, we don't think much of a scepter. A scepter's like that stick, that ornamental rod that a king would hold on to. And it's really just a symbol, but the symbol was that, you know, the king has the power to, well... 
smack people around with that scepter. The scepter was the emblem of the king's strength, his might, his authority. And we say to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you're not just the star of my life. You need to be that. But you also have the right to rule and govern over me. You hold a scepter over me. Brothers, sisters, anybody here who has not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, I tell you very straightforwardly, Jesus Christ needs to be the star and the scepter of your life. He needs to be your focus. He needs to be the thing that enthralls you. He needs to be the thing that you're most interested in. And he needs to rule and govern over your life. And you have not yet begun to live until Jesus Christ is the star and the scepter of your life. What a beautiful, beautiful picture here. Well, the plan of King Balak of Moab failed. Through these four prophecies, Israel was blessed, not cursed. Balaam was fired. He didn't get the big money that he hoped for. Friends, that's the first three acts of this drama. First act, Balaam receives Balak and gets the message from him. Second act, Balaam goes to Balak. That's the whole donkey episode. Third act, Balaam has four prophecies over Israel, ends up blessing them instead of cursing them and giving us this glorious prophecy of the Messiah to come from Israel. But now it comes to Act 4. Act 4 is a little tricky here. Balaam had a very clever plan B. We learn a little something about plan B from Numbers chapter 25. Uh, Plan A for Balaam, and Balak for that matter, was, okay, I'm going to go, and God will help me curse Israel, and the Moabites can defeat them, and everything will turn out good, and I'll walk home with a good payday. That was plan A. Plan A utterly failed. Chapter 25 is plan B of Balaam. You see, in the next chapter, Israel sinned greatly against the Lord as young women from the Midianites offered themselves in exchange for idolatry. Basically, some of the nice-looking young women of Midian, in conjunction with the Moabites, came down among Israel and said, hey, uh, let's go back to my tent and you can worship this idol and we can spend some time together. You see, the pairing of idolatry and immorality was very powerful in the ancient world, in the modern world as well for that matter, but it was overt in the ancient world. And when... Balak, working with the Midianites, sent these young Midianite women throughout the camp of Israel. The Israelites failed, and they worshipped Baal, the God, and they committed immorality with these Midianite women. That brought a great plague upon Israel, and 24,000 men died. 
And the whole nation would have been defeated if not for the brave actions of one man, Phineas, whose actions are described there in Numbers chapter 25. Friends, I'm here to tell you, this was Balaam's plan B. Because later Moses explained the plan to send the Midianites. This is what he says in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. He talks about the women who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Those Midianite women went among the men of Israel at the advice of Balaam. Friends, King Balak of Moab could never pay enough money to make Balaam curse Israel because God didn't want to curse Israel. However, Balaam, after trying to curse Israel and being unable to, Balaam blessed Israel instead, but now at a place called Baal of Peor, Israel was cursed by having the anger of the Lord turned against them because of their sin against the Lord. Friends, this is a very powerful picture. There are many people today in the broader culture who want to curse the church of Jesus Christ. And they want to curse faithful believers. They see faithful believers standing for the things of God in the midst of a corrupt culture. And if they could, they would call down a curse from God upon them. Even if they don't believe in God, they would try to call down some kind of curse. Make no mistake about it. The church of Jesus Christ has its opponents, has its enemies, those who hate it and would curse it with everything they could if they were able. I don't doubt that for a moment. But let me tell you something that this whole story of Balaam shows us. It shows us that the power to curse the people of God is not in the hand of the enemies of God. Well, I'm not saying that there's no threat. I'm not saying that there's nothing to worry about. But when it comes down to it at the end, the power to curse the people of God is not in the hands of the enemies of God, whether they be human enemies or whether they be spiritual enemies. But I'll tell you who holds it in their hand, whether or not the people of God will be cursed, just as it was with ancient Israel. When the church is unfaithful, when the church is disobedient, when the church is into idolatry, when the church forsakes the Lord, it brings its own kind of curse upon itself, just like ancient Israel did. Friends, the enemies of Israel on their way to Canaan were real. But God was greater than them all. The greatest thing they needed to do was remain utterly faithful to the Lord, and he would win his victory. Look, we get some takeaways here from this strange story of Balaam. We see that sometimes God uses strange people. I have no hesitation to tell you, Balaam was a weirdo. 
one of the strangest people in the Bible. I don't know why God spoke through him at all, but he did. But I'll tell you this, when God uses strange people, it doesn't justify their strangeness. It just means sometimes God uses strange people. Sometimes God uses us. Praise the Lord for that. It also shows us this. God may use you, and you can still end in ruin. Friends, God used Balaam. He blessed Israel four times and gave a marvelous prophecy of the Messiah. God used Balaam, but he still died when the Israelites conquered the Midianites. He died among the wicked. We can never content ourselves with saying, hey, look, the Lord used me. Everything must be good. No, we need to stay close to the Lord. Number three, God is for his people. Don't we see this all throughout them? Balak and Balaam tried to get God to be against his people, but it's not going to work. God is for his people. However, the disobedience of God's people may invite his discipline against us. That's exactly what happened at Baal Peor with those Midianite women. And then fourth, despite himself, Balaam ended up prophesying beautifully of Jesus Christ. Balaam pointed us towards Jesus, the star and the scepter. Friends, I'm going to read that verse to you again because it's the best one that we've looked at tonight. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Friends, I say it without reservation. Jesus Christ must be your star. The brightest object in your life. Brighter than you, brighter than anyone or anything else. Jesus said that unless you're willing to forsake all and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus said without reservation, I must be the star, so to speak, of your life. The star will come out of Jacob, and he's the one that we fix on. And friends, I, I don't know anything about this other than just what I've read, but apparently, especially in older times, uh, people would navigate by the stars, sailors, travelers. They'd find the right stars in the sky. The stars gave a fixed position. You fix yourself upon that star, and you know where to go. Jesus has to be that guide, the one upon whom you fix. Jesus needs to be the one that you're drawn to and are led by. Jesus Christ demands that of all of us. But as I said before, I want to say it again just to emphasize it. I think the repetition is beneficial for us. Jesus Christ must be our scepter. You know, the one who rules in your life the one who says, do this, and we say, okay, Lord, you helping me, I'll do it. The one who says, don't do this, and we say, okay, Lord, you helping me, I won't do it. The one who reigns in and over our life. And can I tell you, very straightforwardly, the scepter that Jesus Christ holds in his hand, he earned it. 
He earned it by laying down his life as a sacrifice for sins. I know I'm just imagining here, but I imagine that Jesus dying on the cross, paying the penalty that each one of us should have paid. Jesus receiving in himself all the wrath, all the shame, all the guilt that our sin deserved. Jesus received it in himself and satisfied it all before God the Father. That after it was done, after he said, it is finished, and the price was fully paid on the cross, and after Jesus Christ was raised in glory, and again, I'm just imagining, being a little poetic here, the first thing that God the Father does is he gives him that scepter to rule. You've earned it, son. You laid down your life in sacrifice. You paid the price at the cross, and you rose from the dead to show that nothing has power over you. You rule and reign over all. Here's the scepter. That scepter of Jesus, he's held it for all eternity, but certainly it was earned by a sinless life, a sacrificial death, and a powerful resurrection. Jesus says we must put our focus upon those things. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter speaks of Balaam, and he uses a great phrase there. He talks about Balaam, and he talks about the madness of the prophet. I don't know what madness he's referring to. Beating on the donkey, that's madness. Going with Balak when you know you shouldn't have, that's madness. Uh, Even attempting to curse Israel, that's madness. Giving the counsel of Balaam, where, where you lead Israel astray by those Midianite women, that's madness. No, Balaam had the madness of a prophet. It's crazy, and it's madness to speak of Jesus as a star and a scepter. Did not Balaam speak of Jesus as a star and a scepter? But to fail to recognize him as your star and your scepter. That's what Jesus Christ wants to do in every life here this evening. And I pray that he would gloriously do it in my life and in yours. Let's pray about that right now. Father in heaven, We thank you, Lord, for that inescapable truth that if God be for us, then who can be against us? We ask you, Lord God, that you would fill us with a fresh understanding of what it means to have Jesus Christ as the star and the scepter of our life. Lord, we're tired of fixating upon ourselves or upon someone else. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We're, we're, we're tired, Lord, of trying to raise a scepter over our own life. We say, Jesus, rule over us. Work in us, Lord, and fill us with that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.